Welcome to Sourced, a podcast about the art of audience engagement at a time when competition for attention has never been greater. What works, what doesn't work, and what's changing. Sourced is brought to you by 55 Comms. We've been telling stories, learning about audiences, and helping clients for more than 25 years. You'll hear from a range of guests, including our clients and old friends. Paul White is about as Queensland as you get. He's lived in more towns than most in the various roles of his unique career. Country cop, rugby league player coach, human resources specialist and CEO of the Brisbane Broncos. Working with such different audiences for so long suggests Paul White is a very good communicator. He engages with audiences of all kinds. Paul's main focus has always been family his wife Angela, and their four daughters. The stories around the white dinner table are always Paul's favourites. The latest chapter of Paul's career has just ended, more than a decade of leading the Broncos. It was a decade that included the shock diagnosis of a brain tumour, news that brought out Paul's fighting qualities. My name is Michael Crutcher. I'm the CEO of 55 Comms. I sat down with Paul White to discuss his insights into communicating with audiences. Whitey, thanks for joining us on Sourced. And we sit here at your dinner table in your family home. And that dinner table's always been really important to you right from when you were young through into your married life. Can you talk a bit about the importance of the dinner table? I just think it, for me, it symbolises family. Uh, It also... symbolises quality time. Uh, so many of my fondest memories as a child growing up were around the dinner table with conversation. My mother was quite insistent that we all talk. Um, my dad wasn't a... He was a good conversationalist if you open him up, but he'd get home from work and mum would be trying to extract conversation out of him. So she was often quite, quite cr- critical about dad and his lack of conversation. But uh, she, you know, she asked us questions, we were able to share what we'd done during the day and it's just been a feature of my life, I guess. And part of, I guess, my upbringing, including my time in the bush, particularly in my policing days, we were able to use it as a bit of an asset, really, um, to assist me being a police officer, but also a captain coach of footy sides and... I guess it's the ultimate sign of respect if you welcome someone into your house and they eat a meal at your at your dinner table. So uh, it's the inner sanctum, you know, and uh, I guess that's very important. And I often reinforce that when people come over. Uh, it's it's like saying um, I'm okay, you're okay, you know, for particularly for people that would be a bit ap- apprehensive about coming into my house, whether I'm a in charge of a police station or whether I'm CEO at the Broncos. So I, f- I find it's a great lever and everyone can relax. Well, thanks for asking us here today. And uh, it's not dinner time, but Angela's jam drops are fantastic. <laughs> oh, my God, look at them. I want to get stuck in. <laughs> <laughs> They're magnificent. But there was a time when uh, biscuits and someone in your home played an important role in your life. It's, it's something you've never forgot, is it, that story? My vivid memories at the time was that I had two good mates who were Aboriginal twins um, and, you know, they probably didn't have too much in life. You know, I was eight years old, uh, so I didn't have a full understanding of disadvantage or social disadvantage or some of the things that I'm much more aware of today. But I invited them home um, and, true to form, mum sat them at the dinner table um, we had a packet of chocolate biscuits which you used to keep high up in the shelf. I, I've got vivid memories of that because we didn't... Chocolate biscuits were a rare thing and they were thinly coated in chocolates. My brother and I used to try and peel the... the open the packet and then sticky tape it back up if we could get it. But um, they were always there if someone really special came over. And, you know, I brought these two young blokes home with me and mum sat us down, glass of milk and... She delivered a plate of chocolate biscuits. So my memory at the time was, hell, I'm going to eat as many of these <laughs> as quickly as I can. Um, 
And I think they were thinking the same thing. So we, there was very little talk. We were just all chowing down these chocolate biscuits. But when I think back about some of the things that have influenced, and Mum's been a wonderful influence on in my life, I, that example of her that day, when I reflect back on it, what she was telling me was those two young boys, they were the special people because they, she had obviously recognised that they didn't have much um, and for her it was more and, and mum's background's very much coming from a family, a real working class family with, with very little and I think she really taught me by her actions rather than her words and she never had a conversation with me after the event but I I just rem- from very early on I just remember mum being so, such a welcoming person to anyone who came into our house um, from any walk of life so she really taught me a lot um, on that day but I, I've certainly taken a lot, lot of lessons off, off mum. She's still very much a giving person, she still gives back in her life now in Rockhampton. And so those lessons have obviously been really pivotal in your career because it's a career in which you've engaged so many audiences of different types as a country rugby league coach, as a police officer and the sergeant in charge at, at different places, then as a mining executive, as we'll talk <laughs> about, and then ultimately, of course, 10 years as CEO of the Broncos. Do you look back on some of those early times when you you know, had to sort of get people moving in, in the same direction I'm fascinated with some of those stories around your time as a rugby league coach in the country. Yeah. A young Paul White, captain coach. Yeah. How did you go about that? Oh, with, with not much skill, to be perfectly honest. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd been coached by some great coaches, including Wayne Bennett at South. Um, but I had really no, you know, requisite skills to be a first-grade coach particularly my first uh, coaching job was in Emerald and I got it by default. The, you know, well, on the eve of the season, the, the coach had actually resigned and so had the president of the, the footy club. I think there'd been a blue the weekend before I was in Rocky and I came back and we didn't have a coach. And How old were you then? I was 21 and uh, <laughs> naively I put my hand up and said, look, I'll have a go. And I guess that was inside me there was that desire to to lead and have a go, I guess. Um, and I sort of took it on without a sense of fear. Um, but certainly I had fear <laughs> once I took it on because I had to deliver a training session and, and things like that. But talk about fast-track leadership development. That certainly did that. And, you know, you'd, I'd probably look back at that time and think I, I wasn't a good coach, I wasn't a good leader, I wasn't a great communicator. But what it did, it challenged me, you know, every time... You know, you train twice a week, so you had to prepare for a training run. You had to try and motivate people. I was a player and a coach, so you had pre-game addresses, half-time addresses, and then then an address at the end of the game. And you normally gave out the man of the match award at the footy club that later that night. So I I used that time in my life to really develop my communication skills. Uh, if, I, if I look back on it, they probably weren't very good, and <laughs> and I thought I knew what I was doing, but really I didn't. But I'll tell you one story about that time. What I quickly realised was I was the youngest player on the side, just about the youngest player. There might have been one guy younger than me or, or about my age. Um, and we had a really uh, tough front rower um, who hailed from Barcaulden. His name's Flop Rooney. I'm sure he won't mind me saying, but Flop had come back to, to play that year um, and I knew he wasn't a a great trainer, but I knew he was really well respected within the community. He was a hard man, he was a tough man and he could hit hard and, you know, in those days people loved their footy and they loved the, those guys who were hard in the bush, you know, who, who'd put a hit on someone and the crowd would cheer yeah, um, as much as they had cheered tries and attacking footy yeah. and all that. But the, there was a real reverence around, you know, the hard bloke in each club or each town and, and Flop was certainly that person <laughs> in our team. And I knew unless I got Flop on board, I, I couldn't. I couldn't coach that team. <laughs> so I, I, I said to him, I said, "Look, we're, we're only going to train for an hour. We're not doing any road runs. I'll, I'll make it skill, skills-based training. I know you don't enjoy training, but if if you can just give me an effort for an hour, I know the other blokes will will put in as well. And uh, so I sort of used him to lead, you know, uh, for me. Uh, I understood he was the natural lead. I was was sort of there by default and had the coach title beside my name, but I needed I needed to engage with him and I needed to engage the other guys in the team who are 
pretty experienced as well. So from those early days, I understood there was being a bit vulnerable and putting up your hand to say, you know, you need a hand or you, you don't know everything. Um, and that's only been reinforced over time, but it was certainly... It was, it was, I had a laser focus and I was, you know, I learned so much that year because everything was new, everything was so uncomfortable and I wasn't good at anything. <laughs> uh, I could still play footy, but it probably my football even suffered because I was trying to be, you know, both footballer and coach. Um, How did the season go? We got beaten, we got beaten in the grand final uh, in the last minute. Uh, we played Blackwater Centrals. And uh, I think they they scored late, and the halfback kicked the goal from the sideline. Oh, we played at Emerald, wow. so uh, yeah, it was pretty disappointing. Oh. But uh, to have made it, you know, that far, um, yeah, it was a it was a great learning curve for me. And then what about when you did move around to other places? Because you did live in a bunch of Queensland towns, and you were the country cop. I'm guessing those communication skills you needed as a country cop in those small towns, also a footy player, would have been pretty demanding. How did you go about doing that? Yeah, I, I always looked upon that as a real blessing, you know, that I was a, you know, a, a coach and a half-handy rugby league player in the country. I'm not saying, you know, I shot the lights out as in my rugby league career, but I could hold my hands up, so to speak, um, and most of those communities, they really thrived around sport and rugby league was a big part of those communities. So, you know, having that, it was a real high profile, profile role in the community, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. Um, and you could create a fair bit of influence and the two uh, meshed really well because a lot of the most at-risk young men were also your best football players, your yep. best rugby league players. And it's the case today. Uh, so... <laughs> Me being the coach often was an advantage because you, you, you had half a chance of keeping those young men on the straight and narrow. Uh, so I looked at it as helping my police in career, but also, <laughs> you know, advancing, you know, my rugby league career as it was at the time and, and making sure they both worked together. So I understood the role I had in the community as a police officer, but I understood the privilege of the role of being a coach of, in many cases, the only you know, rugby league team in the town. You made it to Mount Isa as the officer in charge. So obviously being a Mount Isa officer in charge, still playing and coaching footy with a young family, but I'd imagine even on its own without those extra things, that role would have been a demanding role. <laughs> Can you talk about what it was like being that officer in charge of Mount Isa, what you learnt and I guess some of the tactics you adopted? Yeah, that, look, I've got to say the most influential period in my whole life probably occurred in Mount Isa. The, 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 the chance to live in that town and work in that community, be a part of that community and work really hard to make a difference probably was a, a game changer for me personally and from a professional point of view. Um, but it all happened really, you know, it was my first big promotion. I was promoted to officer in charge, uh, which is a, it's a big jump from sergeant of a two-man police station at Middlemount to officer in charge of Mount Isa. About 100 staff, big budget, um, really big police district uh, and really hard to get staff to Mount Isa. So every staff that Every young police officer that came there normally came under sufferance, and they, there was a there was a tenure period for Mount Isa in particular that that uh, was different to every other area of the state. They only had to stay two years, so right. I tried to develop a KPI that every <laughs> week I could keep them beyond the two years was a that gave yeah. me some breathing space to get more troops in. And I used to sit down with the young people that came up, often under sufferance, and say it will be a badge of honour for you that you do time in the community. So. Starting out in Mount Isa, I was pretty determined uh, to make it to make a difference. I, I I didn't just want to get through my probation and you know do three years, and I, I wanted to make it count. I wanted to make a difference. It's probably the first officer in charge, you know, a senior sergeant playing rugby league, and um, you know they just had plenty of treatment to to me, but yeah. in a good way, and you know, in a good way. Yeah, well, we're in a good way because that's our game, and and if you if you held your ground and you you, you didn't sort of flinch, um, you know, you do earn a, a bit of respect from that. I didn't do that because, you know, I, you know, I wanted to 
be aggressive or anything like that. It just, you know, there's an unwritten rule on the rugby league field, you know, um, you know, if you if you can if you can aim up and if, if you're capable of getting out there and competing, you know, shake hands after a game and there's there's a there's a mark of respect there. So had you played against guys you knew you'd locked up? I hadn't locked any of those guys up, but plenty of them in the opposition and some of my own team had been locked up before, you know, yeah. so it was just par for the course yeah. in, the, in the country and often some of those blokes were, were the best players in the competition. So me being the, in charge of police, I, you know, it was a bit of a target, <laughs> but, you know, a few of those guys, I, I actually liked being the target and I'd, you know, I'd run on the field and say, well, I'm out of here today, come and, you know... <laughs> Get into me if you're going to get to deflect a bit of attention from the younger guys, um, and I quite enjoyed that. And I had respect for the, my opposition, but I think they had a bit of respect for me as well. Um, so I, I played in that first year. Mount Isa at the time had a population around about twenty thousand, but twenty percent of that population, roughly twenty percent of that population, identified as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. Um, We'd had dry communities in the Northern Territory and a, and a lot of uh, the, uh, people from those communities would come to Mount Isa um, and, and they virtually live on the riverbank. Uh, the local hotel opened its bottle shop at 8am so you can imagine the, the dysfunction that causes in a community. Uh, the shop owners in the centre of the community were up in arms about you know drunkenness, public drunkenness on the streets and the, there was a whole lot of, lot of issues. Uh, we were locking up about 100 people a day um, and that was just sort of par for course. So I remember probably after about my first five weeks, he'd, he'd have morning prayers on a Monday, so what happened over the weekend, what happened last week, uh, and I, I'd give the stats, you know, we'd made, you know, 300 arrests or whatever it was, um, you know, that been that many breaking enters. You go through the crime stats and all the preventive measures that you've taken, etc. And after about five weeks, I just thought, you know, these numbers are just staying the same. You know, I'm. It's like Groundhog Day. Um, and I had always been of the belief: every arrest you make, when you're making an arrest, don't discount that because there's a level of danger with that, even yeah. if someone's heavily intoxicated or whatever. And, yep. and I did have a lot of my young police suffering. You know, in some, uh, on some occasions, some pretty horrendous sort of injuries. So I, I, I was worried the exposure that the amount of arrests we had to make were, were putting on the uniform police. So Tony McGrady was the police minister at the time. He was in state government. He was a police, and he was the local member for Mount Isa. And I, I went and saw Tony, and I said, I want to do things a bit differently. So you may, you know, when you change things up a bit. You know, there's some people within the community that probably won't agree with what you're going to do and I just asked for permission to do things a little bit differently and I wasn't sort of going to work outside the boundaries of the law. I knew we had to uphold the law but but I wanted to start working with some of the community groups who were trying to do things a bit differently and Father Mick really introduced me to, to all those groups and I worked really close with him. He had uh, So that's Father Mick Lowcock? Yeah, Father Mick Lowcock crutch and uh, he had the contacts on the ground so I just got him to take me and meet every person who was trying to do something to stem what I was seeing like the police are always at the sharp end whether it's mental health whether it's public drunkenness the the police officers they're at the sharp end of you know any enforcement action and we just had to be better as a community so as a result of that I just started set up uh, some you know boxing programs touch football games and I actually made my young police get involved in that. Whether they could play touch, it didn't matter. It was just some interaction. Because the, the thing about a lot of my young police, they hadn't really had any exposure to Aboriginal people. Um, and there, there needed to be a real breakdown of the barriers, particularly with those young people as well. Um, and I just felt that was a way to do it. And we were quite, we were quite, quite successful um, in the outcomes we achieved during that period, I actually, you know, I really had a passion for the work I was doing. Um, but you had to get people on side for that, didn't you? Yeah, it wasn't I'd just about you saying, I'm going to do this. Yeah. It was about consulting yeah. with people and getting them to join in. Yeah, and I'm, I'm sorry to pause, but I just, there's so many sort of stories or memories come to mind of, of that time in my life, but... I, 
I remember, um, you know, there was fault on both sides. Some of these young people were, you know, uh, whether they were assaulting, you know, my young police officers or whether they were using inappropriate language. Um, and some of my young police didn't fully understand how how to communicate with this young cohort of of people as well. Um, but I had to de- first develop an understanding myself of why this was all happening. And it was on one of those visits with Father Mick that we went to a house um, in a suburb on the at the edge of town and uh, he was just walking me around that, that you'd best say it was like a satellite suburb or community and we walked up to the front door of this house where one of these young guys... Um, who'd been a repeat offender in town, uh, was living. And it's the first time I saw, you know, and I knew I knew him, he knew who I was. I was in uniform. But it was the first time I saw a different look in his eyes. And I, and I, I, I now know that looked to be just embarrassment that, I, you know, I'd come to this house. And this is as true as I'm sitting here today. A, a large bloody brown and white pig ran out from the, the house, just about knocked me over. Father Mick had a bit of a laugh about it at the time and I was like sort of half taken back but it was only when I got home to Angela that I reflected back on what what had happened like it was just it was like this almost bit of a surreal experience and I I just said I've realised why those young kids are on the street Uh, it's because they're not eating they're not sleeping and that's why the break and enters were occurring and a lot of it was just really you know um Food, you know, yeah, they're hungry. bread, chips, you know, they weren't stealing, you know, safes with money in it. It was just, you know, they were just stealing food. And so part of these programs that we ran, we got sponsorship from the local baker and butchers. It was a really simple process, but it achieved a lot of things because it it got those young police involved with this group so they had a better rapport. So even if they saw them on the street, they knew their name. Um, we ran the touch football game and then I extended that to a boxing program for girls and boys, which I used to run with the assistance of my police officers and just holding a set of hand pads, if you imagine what... Yeah. That, yeah. That's the beauty of boxing because you get close to people and you can yeah. pat them on the back and well done and, and they feel good about themselves. Um, and then, of course, they'd have something to eat, but to participate in that, you couldn't re-offend if you were going to come. Mm. And they used to love it. You know, the kids loved it at, at the time... So it was my way of making a bit of a difference, but the crime rate hard because they full belly, uh, they'd sleep. Um, and I uh, actually had some people come up from Brisbane to interview me about the, the success of the program, and they did turn up in suits and ties. <laughs> <laughs> and, I was, uh, and, and they had their night book, and I said, write these three words down. And they were looking at me, I said, I know why you've come up here. I said, write these three words down. Exercise, food, Sleep. That's all I've done. That's all I've done. And, you know, they were sort of thinking that I was going to come up with, you know, <laughs> I designed a statistical analysis on what we were doing, but it, it was just it was just so apparent to me that that was, uh, you know, that, that's where we could have a, the most impact. Yeah. What sometimes disappoints you as, as a police officer is that, and I've learnt this over time, you want to save everyone. Like, yeah. you want to... You want to turn all those kids around. I've, I've been out there a number of times to go back and visit, you know, my friends out there and Father Mick and, yeah. and I've actually run into some of those young men who have been to jail and been back and been back to jail. So, you know, the interventions that we had then um, weren't permanent. But, you know, is success ever permanent, you know? So for that, that little period of time, um, I think... I was able, with my police, to make a meaningful difference. And I've learnt that if you're doing your best, that's that's enough. Yeah. Um, and I've learnt not to to stress or sweat that you're not successful with every person. And some, in, on some occasions, you're horribly unsuccessful. Sure. But everyone's worth trying for, you know. Um, I've never believed that... that you know, the value of a human life's not important, I guess. So, you know, so I still live that creed today. Um, but certainly I, I learnt that man are more than anything else. So you went from the police into a mining company, which I'm guessing is a whole new world of communication and the way you were able to engage audiences as a police officer 
and an officer in charge to moving into a more of a corporate world. Yeah. What was that like? <laughs> well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a funny story. This is how I think I got the job. Um, you would know that I'm famous for singing Leroy Brown when I have too much to drink. It's the um, only song you can. Yeah, it's sing. the only song I can sing. But I've sung it in many pubs and hotels <laughs> and footy fields across the state. So. Um, there's a big ball in Mount Isa called the Cascarian Ball, and it's really hard to get a – it was at the time really hard to get a ticket to that ball, but being the officer in charge did have some privileges. <laughs> so we are able to get it. Ange and I could secure a few tickets. And uh, we went that night, and it so happened that the band they had was a Rockhampton band who I'd previously sung the song with. <laughs> Not that they wanted me to sing it, but I said, oh, I'm happy to get up and sing it. <laughs> I'm happy to do that. After I'd had about 3,000 beers, I guess. Um, I guess. Yeah. I bet they were grateful. <laughs> but uh, I sort of... So late in the night, to Angela's great embarrassment, uh, the officer in charge gets up and sings, Leroy Brown. <laughs> so I go back to the bar and... All the mining executives are there, and some from overseas, you know, South America. And I remember um, one of the, uh, you know, CEOs of the South American business, um, he was there, uh, and he, he said, you know, what do you do, mate? And I said, I run the police station. <laughs> he said, oh, you're pretty relaxed here, you know. But, but he also said, uh, he said, do you drink rum and coke and I said yeah I do I said, he, I said, he, I said do you and he said yeah and so he went up and he he, uh, he didn't buy one rum and coke he actually bought a tray back and I said oh <laughs> now we're talking <laughs> so I had, I had a few drinks and, and I didn't really like I, to be fair I knew a lot of the mining executives I'd done a lot of work on disaster management and things like that but I think they were generally aware of the work I'd done in the community and you know I guess you know a little bit of luck, a little bit of hard work, a little bit of just in the right place at the right time. I think they just they took a chance on me, really. They did, um, and those mine managers took a chance on me um, because I didn't have any formal qualifications in HR, all, all being that I'd managed large groups of people. Um, and they took a chance and they rang me up. I'll, I'll never forget the day they rang me up. I was acting inspector at the time, so I had a my police career was was tracking well, you know. So I was. I was an acting inspector and you used to get a, uh, a badge where you could say acting inspector, Paul White, and I, I wore it with great pride. <laughs> um, and they rang me up and just said, this is the left field and we, there's a position going in HR, a, a really lower level position, HR officer I, I think it was, and they said, would you, would you be prepared to take it on? And I, I didn't hesitate, I just said yes. I, just seemed in the, just absolutely the right thing to do at that time in my life. I loved being a police officer and there was great risk, um, but I was young enough to not really contemplate all the risks. But, you know, it, it was tough those first few months because I went from big position, high profile, to really, you know, working on my own, supervising no one. But I learnt payroll, I learnt to do employment contracts, uh, I didn't... Uh, have a heap of work to do in those first couple of months. So I'd go underground every day and try and learn the jobs of all the positions I was recruiting for. Um, and I just relied on others. I'd relied on the others that were doing the work that I were doing who were much more efficient to teach me how to do things. So I just reached out to people and within three months, uh, some of the people who brought me into the business had been made redundant. And they, they, bought, uh, they separated the zinc and the copper businesses and I... I uh, I got offered a, a couple of opportunities, uh, one one with the zinc business. I also had an opportunity with the copper business, but I took the zinc business. Um, the general manager there was a guy called Kevin Hendry, and, and that it was really underperforming business and under huge pressure. And I thought, this is the place I want to work because I'm going to learn the most because of the pressure. And the rest is history, I guess. So even though you went from uh, a role as a police officer into that mining area you still brought with you i guess in the communication skills still going underground still getting out meeting people and talking to people yeah definitely i remember once i went underground took me lunch down there i'm from hr i'm here to help i'm from hr i'm here to help <laughs> i didn't get much of a i didn't get a good response <laughs> i had me cut lunch and i didn't have too many friends down there but i just 
I've also learned sometimes you just got to sit and be silent. Eventually, people will talk to you, you know, because they're yeah. just bloody awkward otherwise. Yeah. Thinking, I feel sorry for the poor bloke. <laughs> He's made an effort to come down here. <laughs> and uh, they open up to you, you know, and they, they you know, they said, you know, they, it's rare that they saw someone from HR down there, not because. Uh, um, of any other reason, most people in HR were busy. I just wasn't that busy, and I so I just used to ring ring up shift supervisors and say, "Can I come down?" You know, and I'd go down with the supervisor and sit and talk to the men. And um, I, I think that really helped me. It helped me learn. But I used to, th- I, I knew the pressure those guys were under then. And so a supervisor, if they wanted a job filled and they they need that job filled, you know, the the nipper was the lowest level role and they were the rest about, they'd go for everything. So if they needed a nipper's role filled, I made sure that was the first thing I did the next day. And so you get the reputation that, you know, go to that guy because he'll get a, get a job done. Um, and I sort of, I still live by that philosophy today, but at the end of the day, the reason I actually got promoted was not, so much because of me, it was the references that those guys, the supervisors, the men underground, superintendents, passed up the line, mm. and all of a sudden the mine bosses are coming in saying, oh, had some good feedback on you. Yeah. And so, so you don't it, set out with that as the intention because you're just you're thinking, this is what I have to do to learn this industry, but it, it's a byproduct of it. So you came to Brisbane as part of your work there. I'm interested in what you sort of made of... Coming to Brisbane, where you had lived previously, <laughs> what was the world like in Brisbane oh. compared to Mount Isa, where you'd been for quite some time? Oh, crutch! It was it was the biggest challenge I, I'd faced personally and professionally. I I got offered a job with Anglo American as sustainable development manager. I certainly had skills in the social area, government relations, etc. Um, I, I didn't really, I hadn't worked in the the operations. I worked in HR, and I didn't really understand a lot. Uh, you know, really, the technical skills around environmental management, but that that also taken a chance. It was a newly sort of set up role. The CEO of the company at the time gave me some firm advice about what he thought of the role, and he's a great friend of mine t- today. But he didn't overly endorse the fact that you know I think the company you know had to put that role in place, and um, I was the one who got it. So, the, and the reason we came back to Brazil, I love Mount Isa, but Emily, my oldest, was in high school, and we made the decision that you know education was really important. Not that the educational opportunities weren't good in Mount Isa. We just sort of made that decision. We had four daughters, and we thought we could sit down yeah. roots for a while and get them all through high, yeah. through school. So it was a step back from a career point of view. Step back financially. A big step back. We had to rent a house. We didn't have enough money for a deposit for the house at the time. So, um, you know, the difference between the price of a house in Rockhampton or Mount Isa in Brisbane were just yeah just uncompetitive. And I remember I used to get the bus to work. I, I, you, you're always scared, right? Like people talk about your first day in those jobs. I, we li- we had an office in Charlotte Street. I didn't drink coffee, by the way. I'd never drank coffee, but that that's changed since <laughs> I've been in Brisbane because everyone who you're meeting with. Meet, let's meet for a coffee. Yeah. So you meet for a coffee. So I think on one of my first or second days, I had six cappuccinos. I was <laughs> bouncing off the walls and I was having cappuccinos <laughs> with full milk, thinking, geez, I'm putting on weight. <laughs> and I'm scooping me because it was a, a bit of a luxury, you know. <laughs> and then I found we had a coffee machine that made cappuccinos. So I'd be in there making, <laughs> Anne's, look at this, I've got a cappuccino machine. Uh, the small things that amuse small minds, I guess. But, but I found it really tough because... You know, I, I was in a job that really no one in the company wanted and uh, yet I had to try and make that role my own and had to grow it and give it some relevance in the business and I found ways of doing that. But, you know, so I went to, from a, a really good job in the mines in Mount Isa and, you know, really a real career pathway. The, the company wanted me to stay, to come near Brisbane and we were just part of the part of the system I wasn't coaching footy uh, you know that, so I, I didn't have those th- things in my life but but I found ways and I knew I had to develop more than just my job so um, I went back and I gave Hook a hand in 2006 to coach Redcliffe that was more for me it wasn't because I got paid anything you know it was just about me doing something to 
sort of grant, keep me grounded and and you hooks know. Anthony Griffin, a long time yeah. friend of yours. Yeah, no, he is. Yeah, so he asked me would I come and give him a hand, and I realised that year that my coaching career had had finished. Like. I, I, when I was coaching in the bush, it was councils, witches hats, and you know you're lucky if you had a couple of tackling pads and you'd have one football. And and what I quickly realised, and I'd coached at state league level, and I coached for 17 years, so I was good at, I suppose, the man management side of coaching, but the technical side of coaching had passed me by. So yeah. people using terms like tram lines and things like that, and I was thinking. What's that? <laughs> you know? So Hook let me take the defence and Radcliffe had a particularly tough side, old school sort of forward pack and uh, they they belled the crap out of each other when they did defence, so I love that. Yeah. So that was my skill. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd take them for defence, but it was a great year. We won the comp that year and uh, and I knew that that was enough and I think the year after I, did a, I applied for and was accepted in for a Vincent Fairfax Fellowship, um, which was a two-year leadership program designed around ethical-based leadership set up by Sir Vincent, um, you know, many, many years ago to develop, you know, young ethical leadership in Australia. And that was, a, that was another, apart from my work, that was another thing that filled a, filled a gap. Because you're always learning, to, you're always wanting to do more. By that time, I'd finished an MBA so that's why I got back into coaching. So I always did something to supplement, you know, my learning. Yep. Um, and, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it was challenging at the start, Crutch. I know I've given a long answer to that, but I, I, I just developed ways to, to, to cope yeah. without, you know, coming home every night and saying to Ange and the kids, I'm not really enjoying work. You know, you got to – you just got to – Work out a ways that you cope, and the way the way that you can enjoy your time in Brisbane and work, and all those other things. And so you learn most when you you really learn most when you're under the most pressure. Um, and uh, I learned a lot in those couple of, first couple of years in Brisbane, um, uh, and I think it, that really served me well. You know, because I I certainly didn't have a profile. I, I was you know, starting at the bottom of this company and I remember famously saying to the CEO one day, I'll do every job no one else wants to do and, of course, he delivered on that <laughs> he, he delivered on that request <laughs> so I tended to take on a few jobs that no one else wanted to do but, I, you know, I learned from those experiences as well. So it was great. I love my time in the mining industry and, to be honest, probably didn't have any desire to leave it. I, I, they'd put me on leadership development programs. I, I was really secure in my my job and my position within the company and my, I could see where my career was going um, and in the mining industry, share incentives, I was locked into all those things and just when everything was starting to settle for Ange, I said, I'm going to apply for this job at the Broncos <laughs> and of course, yeah, that changed again. So there's a story that you have of you when you were quite young and your beloved father when you were on a property and there were some pups born on that property. Mm. And one of those pups became very attached to you and you <laughs> to it. Can you tell us that story? Yeah, no, it's, it's pretty vivid. And when I, when I tell people, I was telling my mother-in-law about it the other day and she was half shocked that Dad had done this to me. But again, Dad didn't say this is the lesson I'm teaching you. He just acted instinctively. So... Dad was brought up on a dairy farm at Rosewood, not far from Brisbane, um, and the, one of the dogs on the, the farm had a litter of pups and this pup had taken a, taken fondly to me and um, we were going for a walk to round up the cattle. They were being milked, they got milked, hand milked morning and night, um, separated the cream and milk. It was a great time. Uh, we used to love getting up the farm. but So the dog was following me, the little pup was following me down and Dad was a big, Dad's a big man who was you know, six foot four and, and a big man, big hands, and I just, everything about Dad was big, right? <laughs> so this dog walks up alongside me and Dad and Dad grabs the dog, you know, in his big hand and just throws it into the middle of this dam and the dam had a bit of green scum on it and I thought, it's gone. You know, like, I want to dive in after the dog, but it went down and my dad just big hand again onto my chest and goes... Wait. Eventually, the head comes up, and all of a sudden, this little pup swims to the edge. And he said, "If it wouldn't have survived that, it's not going to survive here because all the dams were unfenced, and 
So the lesson he was, the lesson he taught me, which I now reflect back on, it wasn't, you know, th- throw throw kids into a dam when they can't <laughs> swim and hope they survive, but it was sometimes you're the dog in the dam and you're just paddling hard to get to the edge, and it's a struggle. So when you're the dog in the dam, just understand it. Keep paddling, you'll get there. <laughs> so <laughs> I've had to use that a fair bit over, I guess, my life and career, but it's a. You know, it's a very visual example if, if you're trying to tell someone, and I talk to young people a lot about that, just keep paddling because you, you, you think it's all, it's all going to end and you, you won't get through it, but just keep moving. For some Bronco supporters in 2010, you were the puppy thrown into the dam, <laughs> this guy that they didn't really know anything about, yeah. Paul White, the new CEO of the Brisbane Broncos, into the dam you went – Ten years later, have you emerged from the dam? <laughs> I think I'll go back in and get it. I think I've swum to the edge a few times, you know. Look, it's been a wonderful journey, Crutch, to be honest. I mean, full of many highs and the highs are enormous and the lows are, you know, they, they are, you know, they're, they're deep lows when, when you're under the pump and you're losing games and making really tough decisions. But, but overall, it's been a wonderful journey for me. Um, so I emerge from the dam and then every now and then you get thrown <laughs> back into it. So, but, but, you know, the, the truth is, someone asked me the other day uh, whether someone was ready to be a CEO, not, not at the Broncos, but I, I, uh, my immediate response is, every, is anyone ever ready to be a CEO? Uh, which uh, I, I truly believe that. I don't believe you're ever ready and I don't believe I, I was ready at the time. I had requisite skills but you've still got so much to learn. And even 10 years on, I'm still learning. So I would still say the same thing if I had to go into a CEO role in another industry and another job. You've actually got to approach it that you're not ready because it makes you sharp, it makes you see things that others don't, you have fresh eyes. Because if you think you've invented, you know, the, the, the role of CEO, what, what is it? You know, it's, it's so diverse. It's, you know, in, in a... Society that's changing so dramatic, you, you're dealing with young people, older people, diverse stakeholders on, almost on a daily basis that, you, that you're never truly ready. And I always believe that, you know, I, I use the analogy be comfortable being uncomfortable. I apply that to myself but also to my staff. Don't want to be stressed um, but you want to be a bit agitated and uncomfortable because that's when you learn the most. And in that role there are so many important attributes to it but communication is so important you came into that role and all of a sudden your target audiences are varied and different you've got your staff of course you've got your football department and players you've got your sponsors who are so important plus and you've got the governing body and other stakeholders how did you go about in those 10 years engaging with all those audiences oh just just i guess fear fear has a lot to do with performance if that makes sense I, I don't mean like most times when people get up you know most people are so scared of public speaking and and I'd like to see, think I do it reasonably well but I'm fearful every time I do it you know whether it's you know in a, a classroom situation at a school or whether it's the season launch at the Broncos you do have an element of fear and you I do think it that, well yeah but I think that's one of the things that the the sense of fear of wanting to do it well because when you've hold my position there's an expectation you do it well because your, your message has to carry. Um, and some will say that's no good or he's, he's speaking garbage there and some will like it, but that's the nature of it. But, you know, uh, do it well, do it, do it y- yourself, you know, be authentic as well. When I say authentic, it, you, you can't pretend to be someone you're not, so you've got to develop communication strategies that are you. You can't say, I'm going to talk this way to the Prime Minister and I'm going to talk this way to a... A community group, you've you, sure the discussion's different, but I think you've he should get the same message that they do about who I am and and you know what I believe in, my values and things like that. So I, I try and leave a little bit of that in, in when I communicate with people as well and keep it real. You know, uh, I'm not a great believer in sort of. Uh, trying to manage my message sometimes you've got to you've got to stay to script if you've got a if you've got a you know a crisis or something playing out at the club you've you've got to keep you know to your structure but um you've also got to be yourself as well because 
Otherwise, you don't survive, you know, because you can't be a good communicator one day and a terrible one the next day just simply because you don't feel in the mood to communicate. You've got to... The, the role of CEO, you know, it involves that you've got to be at your best all the time, whether you feel at your best or not. You've got to be there at your best. just want to raise a few of those... Talk about crises, different situations over your decade at the Broncos. I remember your anguish at the time when Hook, Anthony Griffin, your mate who you'd coached with at Redcliffe in 2006, he was a Broncos coach and the time came for him to leave the Broncos. Yeah, yeah. And I, I recall your anguish at the time about this situation. Can you reflect on what you did at the time and how you did it? Yeah, no, it was it was a difficult time for everyone at the club. Um, but we could all say it was difficult for us. But Hook was the one, you know, in my mind, he was the one that I had to look after, you know, both with the messaging and, and me being the one to deliver it, and I put my hand up to do that. Um, but also then preparing him for how he's going to message his exit. And I, and I look back at that, and I guess because I was invested personally and professionally I just wanted to I, I knew the better job the, the better the job I did the better result for Hook there'd be um, What was it like telling you, your mate that his job as Broncos coach was over? Yeah it wasn't pleasant and we'd had a good win the night before you know and he was in there doing his video in the morning he was in the old facility and I, I walked in and you know I didn't Hook's pretty economical with his words as well so I didn't sort of rose colour it just within the first 30 seconds of the conversation I said it was over and um, you know the board had made a decision and and you know, put my hand up to deliver that uh, that decision um, and we sort of got to work almost straight away like there's an element of shock there's disappointment um, we're, we're, we're running sixth I think at the time when when we parted with with Hook, so it did come as a, a real shock to him, um, and I understood that. And we had we were very close, both families. So one was the messaging, but then making sure I was around to support him and Helen and the children, sort of afterwards. And we, you know, I remember that night we'd we'd had the day from hell, and Hook had got home, and Ange and I went over there with our children. The kids were all crying and hugging each other, and Hook goes. Yeah, yeah, and it's only hook and say, bloody hell, Whitey, can that you stop them crying? You know? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's not my best talk. I'm doing better than that. But I had a six pack of beer and we had a few beers together, and then we sort of just road mapped, you know, we, it's going to be a big week for us, and well, it was going to be a big couple of days. But, you know, what I tried to impart upon him is that the way he exits is really the first interview he has for his next job, and I think he. He did that with a degree of dignity. I think we did that pretty well as a club. Um, and and he's, he went on to coach Penrith, did pretty well there, um, and now he's at the Dragons. So, you know, no, you know, success isn't forever and failure is not fatal either. Um, in Hook's case, he's, he, he's proven that. A few years later, you'd part ways with Wayne Bennett as Broncos coach, someone who you went back decades with. Yep. With Wayne, though, you weren't having a six-pack that night after it nah, happened. Nah, <laughs> that was nah. a different experience for you, wasn't it? What What did you learn from that and how challenging was that time? Oh, yeah, you know, you, you know it's a, it's a, because it's such a, a heightened emotional time in, in, your, in your life, and, but you've still got a job to do, and there was no... There was no right or wrong way of doing that. People all have their opinions um, with the circumstances I faced. I'm not going to go into the details of that. Uh, I did the best that I could. Um, you don't want it to end it like that and you don't want to lose a friendship. Um, and I guess that's just one of the the outcomes of leadership and, and being, a, 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 I guess, in the, in the position I'm, I'm in. Um there's plenty of diverse thought around the correctness of that decision, you know, both for and against, and it's not a popularity contest. So you've just got to deal with the facts that you're given and you've got to always make decisions on the best interests of the club. Um, and that's that's certainly one thing that Wayne, Wayne had taught me, you know. Um, uh, and I certainly, the one thing I can say hand on heart, I didn't act in self-interest. Um, and I think... That gave me a sense of strength uh, about 
you know, the correctness of, of my actions regardless of what was happening externally. Um, the fact that it hurt so much, the fact that, you know, personally and professionally, you know, you know, I earn a fair few scars from that little period of time in my life. So, um, you know, hand on heart, I could say I was acting in the best interest of the club. I should declare that we spoke a bit over that time and at every time and that step, you seem very much focused on the organisation. How challenging is it when you have so many different audiences? We mentioned before, you've got your uh, staff, your footy department, players, sponsors, etc. But I guess the organisation is the focus. Yeah. That was your guiding light at that time? Yeah, definitely. Uh in, in this role, you're responsible for the welfare of the entire organisation. I mean that. Um, and that's why I keep saying you can't act exclusively in self-interest, you know, when confronted with really challenging set of circumstances. One that I never thought I'd encounter, but it, it came to me and, I, you know, I, I had the baton and it was up to me to, you know, do my job. Um, yeah, but, but I... Again, that, that, that gives you, I guess, a reference point for uh, how you respond and the way you respond. And, you know, oftentimes people look, th- look at it through the lens of, you know, the, the announcement or a press conference or a single conversation. But, you know, there's many more moving parts to decisions like that that happen in advance and post. Um, and you've got to be prepared um, to lead outside the spotlight. So, you know, the cameras go away, you finish the announcements and things like that, but you've got an organisation there that in, in many cases will, you know, th- there's always a, a, a sense of, I guess, um, there's always a sense of grief when, when you lose someone uh, from the organisation. So you've got to be there to have hard conversations, to, you know, to reach out to people, make sure they're okay. Because if you don't look after your people at that time, ultimately your business starts to get a little bit derailed. And I'm really pleased to say that, you know, my executive team, the staff there, they did a wonderful job. And I guess over time they get a sense that when you're most under the pump, I, 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 I see the absolute best in some of those people. They know that you probably don't have as much time as you normally would have for them, but they just get on and they do their job well. And I think that's a real feature of the culture of the, of the Broncos club. Um, is that they, they do rally, they rally to each other. Um, the nature of professional sports is tough decisions happen all the time. If you're around it long enough, you just get that. Um, you know, I've survived 10 years. Um, but, but, you know, everyone's got a use-by date. So you've got to the side of the pond after 10 <laughs> years, you're walking up the bank, the green scum's coming off. What have you? What will you take away from you from ten years as a CEO that maybe you weren't so aware of at the start of this job? What What are those sort of key things you've learnt in those ten years? Oh, there's so many. I know. I, I thought you might ask me this one. I, I'd actually love to spend a bit of time and just, you know, when I when I finally exit to say what have I learned? It's a bit like the chocolate biscuit story with mum, it's only years later that I understand she, that's what I've learnt from yeah. that. And I think there'll be times where I'll, you know, into the distant future, I'll think, yeah, there's a there's a lesson I've learnt there and it just, it, it's not immediate because everything's so, the speed which things happen in our industry and at our club, the size of it, just happens so quickly. So oftentimes you'll, you get through a tough period and you'll be thrown straight into something else. So you don't have time sometimes to just sit and, allow everything to digest. But I think, you know, the lessons, you know, I've learned is, you know, look after yourself, establish really good personal habits. Um, I'm a bit religious about exercising first thing in the morning because if you allow the mobile phone to ring before you exercise, you're immediately distracted and you won't get back to that. So um, I establish a really strong routine looking after my personal health, exercise. Uh, I'm going to miss the ice bath, so I love cold water, <laughs> cold showers. Uh, so, you know, personal health is important. You, cannot, you can't, can never be your best professionally if you're not the, your best personally, so I know that. And your cancer battle was well publicised and your health's excellent. Yeah, yeah, I'm very lucky, you know. Uh, I remember saying a little prayer when uh, I was diagnosed and I got – it was a couple of journeys along the way, but the first one is I had to get a brain biopsy, so it was 
it was a pretty bloody um, risky operation, I guess. And I remember going in to that, and Ange and the girls were up there, and there's a few tears, and that, you know, it's a pretty yeah, it's graphic because they yet they drill into your head because your head can't move, and and they the operation was in a pretty uh, you know touchy area of the brain that if they if you know a millimetre either side, I could have lost some movement in the left side of my body, etc. So it was a, it was an element of risk with that, the, and it was only a biopsy. Um, but I remember coming out of that, you know thinking I'm, I'm awake and it was there was a state of origin game that night which Queensland won I remember watching that as well so I have vivid memories of that time but I said I actually said a little prayer and said God if you leave me down here for a long enough period I'll do some good work for you you know so I sort of think <laughs> I've got to honour that promise I, I don't know how pleased he is with me but uh, and the other thing I did I just started to set challenges then so I was supposed to be in intensive care for three days which is a, this is a bit of a funny story, um, and but there were people in intensive care that really were dying. They were sick, and I thought, I'm not as sick as some of these people. So straight away, I thought, I'm going to get out here in a day and a half. I'm not going to be here three three days. So I sort of set myself little targets, and the nurse came in after the operation. I was doing squats on the side of the bed. <laughs> she said, "What the hell are you doing?" <laughs> And uh, she was a lovely nurse and, uh, and I knew I had to have a shower before the kids came up because I had, you know, had some blood on the side of my face and all that sort of stuff from the operation. So I said, my goal is that you give me a shower. She said, no, you're not going to be able to shower. And I said, I'm going to have a shower before <laughs> these kids get up. <laughs> I probably shouldn't say this, but, you know, they, they got me a frame and I, I got in the shower and I freshened myself up. So I, I did get out in that, you know, about a day and a half. And so, yeah, yeah. Um, Everything was a little challenge. I just said, you know, that, that whole journey. But it was a, I've got to say this, Crutch, I really do because I reflect back. It was a wonderful time of my life, absolutely a wonderful time. I, I, I really mean that. It was, it was a time where all of a sudden you go to work one morning, the, it, by that afternoon everything's taken off you, you win it back, and, my God, I made the most of it then. And I always said from that time on I'd just make the most of my life. But... You know, during that period with some chemo, radio, radiotherapy, and then a couple of years of chemotherapy, um, I just found everything, you know, uh, positive in the challenge of it all. Um, and Ange and I, you know, we did everything we had to do. We spent lots of time together, lots of time with the family, and yeah, I loved it. You know, it was, it's a, t you know, I, I don't wish what happened to me on anyone. But I always say to people, and oftentimes people will reach out to you and they'll ask you for some advice, the advice I give is make your journey your own. And it's a bit of a, that would be, I'd give that same advice about life. It's got to be your journey. It can't be someone else. You can't read a book or Google something on the internet. I never Googled what I had. I've never looked it up. I've never, I got letters from people saying I should try different treatments and all those sorts of things. But I just had two great doctors, Paul Eliadis and David Schleck. I just said they're good, best in class, and I put my faith in those guys, you know. And David was the one who got me positive because he said I could have a few beers. He was my <laughs> radiotherapist, so he said I could have a few beers. So I just found good in everything, I guess. And uh, uh, I'll never forget it, but it, it's a great period and, and I've, I learned a lot. Um, and, and the club was unbelievable to me at that time as well. So what's next? Uh, look, I, I've, I do have a couple of things lined up, but I, 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 um, I, I haven't fully committed to anything just at the moment. One thing I do know is um, I, I'm going to have to be busy. You, you know, you, you get an insight into my life. You know, if there's a void, I'll look to fill it. So um, I'd like to do something in the community, you know, on a volunteer basis. I joined Vinnie's St Vincent de Paul last year and I just haven't had a chance. I've gone to one or two meetings. So, so that's something I'd like to do more of um, and making sure that I don't spread myself too thin. So Dad and Mum were heavily into St Vincent de Paul, so I think that's part of their legacy. Um, and I'd like to do something that's going to challenge me, like an industry that I've never worked in before. So... So I'll try and do that um, uh, and I'll be my own boss for a short period of time. I hope that works. I hope I can pay some bills. <laughs> but I'm, I'm looking forward to it, Crutch. And, and 
if you said to me, why, why are you looking forward to it? Because I'm going to feel uncomfortable again. I'm going to have to fight again. I'm going to have to re-establish myself external to the CEO job of the Broncos. I'm, you know, um, but there's no doubt the skills and some of the things I've learned will help me in, in the next stage of my career. But life's a continual learning sort of circle. I'd like to do a little bit of writing, uh, and I've dipped my toe in the water there. But but I know I've yeah I've got to uh, I've got to write for my family first, and then I'll see where that takes me. Well, all the best with it. We've enjoyed listening to this part of your story. There's more to come. We wish you all the best, and thanks for your time. Thanks, Crutch. <laughs>